Welcome to episode 205 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I am Mike Solosi, and today we are going to give the people what they want. Wild Arms 3 won a listener poll that we held earlier this spring, and uh, we are going to finally record this episode. Originally, this episode was going to go up during the summer, but I got extremely distracted by uh, the official release of Psychic Nintetsu 3 slash Trials of Mana, so we're getting it in September. And I'm being joined uh, for his first podcast appearance, I think, or I should say his first retro encounter appearance, by social media warrior Joe Padilla. Hey there, what's up? So, Joe, uh, we talked a little bit about this off-air. Uh, this is your first Wild Arms game, and probably my first completed Wild Arms game. Because I've tried a couple, but never, but I haven't finished any before. So, uh, I, I know you. a couple RPG series have uh, passed you by a couple times. I, I mocked <laughs> you once or twice for not playing a Dragon Quest game. <laughs> Uh, but I, I don't, I mean, Wild Arms, it has been around a while and it has some level of iconography, but maybe not as much as Dragon Quest. So what's your, or what did you think Wild Arms was before you started playing and what are your earliest impressions of Wild Arms 3? I frankly had not heard of Wild Arms until probably a year ago or so. And so, um, like I said, I was kind of out of the loop on RPGs for quite a while. Um, so, uh, I when I when I heard about it, I just figured Clint Eastwood in a JRPG, <laughs> and uh, it's not terribly not terribly off, I guess. <laughs> okay, now if Clint Eastwood starred in spaghetti westerns, like you know, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, was one of the best movies ever made. Does that Absolutely. make does that make Wild Arms a ramen western? Maybe. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I. I I guess. I guess. <laughs> I definitely want to talk about the Western-inspired setting of Wild Arms, but uh, first I'll go into my personal background. Um, sure. I didn't get a PlayStation until right around 2000. I remember like Final Fantasy IX had come out recently when I got a PlayStation, and I was uh, much more interested in tackling the uh, Mega Man 8s and Final Fantasy 7s of the world when I first got my PlayStation. But when I was uh, going on, you know... Uh, video game and RPG-centric forums in the early 2000s, Wild Arms 1 and 2 came up often. Uh, they were... Uh, I think Wild Arms 1 came out worldwide before Final Fantasy 7 did. It was one of the earliest RPGs on the PlayStation, mm-hmm. right around the time of your Suikoden 1s and your Beyond the Beyonds. <laughs> but the... Uh, which is, uh, and w- one of those games I might recommend, but let's... Uh, and, and it's Beyond the Beyond, of course. Uh, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Camelot did not learn, did not know how to make an RPG before finally hitting with Golden Sun. Let's let's just leave it there. But uh, <laughs> but so I was aware of Wild Arms One at least since the uh, early two thousands ish, and I did get a copy and play through maybe half of it. I, I want to say I played fifteen or twenty hours of Wild Arms, but I got waylaid by something or other. I don't I don't even know if I was in, remember if I was in high school or college when I played it, but the. Uh, but I, but I was intrigued by it. It was a pretty good RPG. 
And over the years, I mean, more Wild Arms games came out, and I think there's uh, five in the main series plus a remake of the first one called Alter Code F, and may maybe more that I'm unaware of. Uh, so these five games do have their fans, and I w did see chatter about them on forums for years, but uh, I wasn't really sure what the what was considered the best one or the most popular one. Like I've, I've had different groups of people insist that one, two, three, or five is the best one. I I, I don't have a, I didn't have a great gauge of what the good Wild Arms was, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, from our mutual friend Marcos Gaspar and from this poll result, at le Wild Arms three at least seems like a popular one. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And friends, friends that I've had when I was telling them I'm playing Wild Arms three, I've had three different coworkers say, "Oh, that's the best one." So, so I think I think we made a pretty good decision here. Yeah, when I when oh, well, I met, well, the listeners made the listeners made a pretty great decision here. <laughs> yeah, I basically agree. And when when I mentioned Wild Arms three was like was an upcoming podcast game or the next podcast game, it always got a positive return. This game is is well liked. And um, I enjoyed what I played of the first Wild Arms, and I even noticed elements of it in this Wild Arms. But uh, I, I want to, before we start talking about the story and characters in Wild Arms 3, which, which are good, and I do want to talk about those, uh, I want to get into some comparisons between the first and third, because, and a little bit about the setting in general. Um, every Wild Arms game takes place in Phil Gaia, which is, uh, which, you know, has cowboy, cowgirls, bandanas, uh, Native American iconography. Uh, it, it, it's inspired by the American West uh, of the, you know, 1800s. And mm -hmm. some of these games carry that setting and that aesthetic more than others. Uh, in Wild Arms 1, there's three, only three main characters, but two of them fight with swords. And, and, uh, and, the, third, mm. and the third one just is, a, you know, a magical girl with a staff and elemental spells. And, uh, and only one of the characters has arms, like one of the swordsmen has arms as sort of his special ability. He, he collects arms and special ammo and upgrades them. And while the, the other one uses special sword techniques and the, and the magical girl has magic attacks. And in Wild Arms 2, I'm not an expert on it, but, the, um, but just from doing a little bit of research, the main character fights with a bayonet. Only two characters can use these heavy arms weapons that are like uh, re relics of a bygone era, while the other characters are magic users or robots or something. Hmm. So, basically, I think the aesthetic of Wild Arms or the some of the central ideas of Wild Arms of are of sort of lost technology and the and the uh, the desert setting being harsh, but humans sort of surviving in it anyway. In a way yeah. that, it, that that's a little post-apocalyptic, a little bit riding JRPG tropes. Like, of course, there's an ancient civilization that that uh, mastered magic that we have to discover again. But Wild Arms 3, I think, takes the Western setting much farther because they, you, you have this concept of drifters, of, of people just wandering the desert seeking fortune, and everyone seems to fight with firearms and, uh, and sort of like having your special arms, which, is, which are guns, and like taking care of them and upgrading them is sort of central to your survival. And that, that seems a little bit more real spaghetti Western than fighting with swords and magic the like I did in Wild Arms 1. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess you definitely wouldn't find you definitely wouldn't find that in your Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns. Uh, last I saw, the Man with No Name trilogy, I don't remember any magical girls. 
I don't remember. I barely remember any girls in any of them, or in Once Upon in the, or in Once Upon a Time in the West. <laughs> that's the, that's the best one. That yeah, was the topic yeah, for a whole nother day. Yeah, but... the, the, that's the secret fourth best one with with Henry Fonda in it, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> but the uh, uh, and uh, <laughs> again, I think that this uh, ramen western that we're playing is inspired by the spaghetti westerns, but also has a lot of sort of real basic JRPG ideas in it, especially with the way dungeons are set up. And the way that uh, and and the way that quests and and magic are set up, but it's uh, again I think Wild Arms Three takes it takes that Western setting a little and rides it a little harder than it did in the first two Wild Arms games, and I think it benefits from that. This game feels like a JRPG set in the West, while in the, the like Wild Arms One felt like a more basic JRPG with like a with like a uh, cowboy hats and bandanas filtered over it. Hmm. And, yeah. Uh, it's, it seems rather the, I think one of the best things about the world is that it seems very, uh, it seems very organic. Things kind of flow into each other. Well, you know, all these towns in these vast stretches where you don't find anything really, except for things that are going to try to kill you. So, yeah. And also, um, like the game, the game world feels sort of lived in is the wrong word, but it, but it it feels it feels like you're always searching, um like like you are yeah. you are a drifter, you don't know where the next your next source of income is, and uh and you can only really find new areas once you hear rumors about them, and then they won't even be searchable on the map until that happens. But let, let, let's back it up a little bit, um because this has, wild arms has uh wild arms 3 has some pretty unique systems that i don't really think of and or see in other jrpgs but mm-hmm. uh one thing about this game that i love that i could probably do an entire hour podcast on even though i think this takes place in less than an hour uh i love the first scene of this game i i love the 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 opening conceit <laughs> where uh um, you're on, uh, the four main characters are on a train. They're all interested in this uh, package being held in a train car. They all jump into the train car at the same time and point their guns at each other. And then you get like the record scratch. Now, how did we get into this mess? Kind of <laughs> kind of moment. And you uh, you get to play in whatever order you choose the each main character's sort of first chapter, how they got on the train. And that is very cute i like that a lot (laughs) yeah i thought that was i thought that was fantastic you know you just had this you had this scene and um (laughs) and when i was thinking and i was thinking about and had the narration stuff i was just uh i was thinking about the big lebowski and i was like god i wish sam elliott was narrating this (laughs) because that would just be perfect um, this game does not have a lot of voice acting in it but if if we could get a narrator for this game sam elliott is at the very top of the list Absolutely. And uh, another guy who might be higher up the list would be, I don't know, either uh, uh, R.I.P. David Carradine or maybe one of the Carradine brothers, because I, th- I think um, I think that Ga- um, Gallows's last name is Carradine, probably yeah. after David Carradine, <laughs> from, because he, he was on a Western TV show for many years. I, I wasn't really sure about Virginia or Jet necessarily. You know, maybe Jet is Cowboy Bebop. Um, and Clive... I, I the first thing that came to my mind was a uh, gunman Clive. The was that an old like Nintendo uh, some sort of oh, Nintendo maybe. game? There yeah. Was, oh god, there's a there's a Super Nintendo game that I think was on arcade hardware called uh uh called Sunset Riders. 
and um I know. It, 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 Sunset Riders is great. It's a, it's basically an arcade shooter, but uh, the, there's three main character. There's four main characters, and the first three are uh, basically red, blue, and yellow cowboys. And uh, no, I'm sorry, red, blue, and green cowboys. And they're all blonde and basically look the same. But the fourth character is a clearly Mexican, giant mustache, pink serape guy named Cormano. Oh my god! And, uh, and, and <laughs> when you're playing that game with friends, you are either uh, going right for Cormano or you didn't get first pick. <laughs> and and there is a NPC in the third or fourth town in Wild Arms Three named Cormano wearing pink. That's amazing. And I and I and I saw this. I'm like, no way. There's a Sunset Riders character in this game. What is going on? But anyway, I, I think that Virginia Maxwell's name comes from uh, uh, there's a character in Wild Arms One named Jane Maxwell. Oh, uh, okay. I, I think her full name might be Calamity Jane Maxwell. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. But I, I think Virginia is is implied to be her descendant or maybe her ancestor. I'm not sure which game takes place first, if there or mm-hmm. if there is a real series timeline. But uh, any anyway, so we might have some Gunman Clive or uh, David Carradine in kung in kung fu <laughs> situations here. But but there's a lot of uh, Western film and television influence in this game, and I think that. Wild Arms Three embraces it more than its the previous ones do, and uh, and and, it, and it's also sort of brilliant that the game has a Mexican standoff in the first three minutes. It's it's the per it's the perfect opening, frankly. I it, think that's the, the game. The game has been great so far, but but that scene was just like Chef's Kiss, just fantastic. I, I love the first three minutes of this game and uh, and, uh, and and the first hour is also very good because it gives you a fair introduction of these four main characters and introduces a lot of dungeon mechanics to you um mm-hmm. uh they, they even give you a difficulty scaling for each character it's sort of implied uh, hey play these easiest to hardest so we introduce sort of the uh mechanics more gradually to you mm-hmm. and uh like uh, Virginia lives in a small town, and goblins steal all their food, so she goes into the goblin lair and gets it back. Uh, Gallows is a slightly lazy priest in training who goes into into a temple to get a sacred relic because he wants to travel the world, and he'll he might it might go better with a sacred relic. And then uh, uh, Jet is sort of a gun for hire treasure hunter who sneaks into a temple and then helps and then helps another guy in the temple escape. And then Clive is. A, a hired gun who's hired to kill the monster in a cave that's uh, that's threatening the nearby village, and uh, his is his is probably the most elaborate one. You got to navigate the cave and fight the boss of it twice while learning sort of uh, more more mechanics than the other three. But uh, l- let's go into the four characters individually because I think um, I think they're a highlight for me in this in in uh, this game so far. Yeah, these I mean these four characters are. I've I think that they're they're already becoming pretty fleshed out, um, rather complex figures, um, in kind of in in so many ways. Um, I mean, for for start with Virginia, I think she's a very um, kind of atypical JRPG protagonist um, in terms of you know she she has that sort of naivete that you see in quite a few other characters, mm-hmm. but, um, but what I, what I kind of love about it is that, you know, when you, when you see um, certain other protagonists, it's that they kind of have this optimism and the other characters just kind of put up with it. And, Oh, that's just Virginia being Virginia. 
Yeah, her optimism that, is is more infectious. Like it's it's a it's like a defining part of her character, but they the other characters sort of make her the leader because of that optimism. Yeah, it's it's infectious and also and it's also kind of um hardened, I guess. You know, she her optimism and believing in the good in people gets her in trouble. That's sort of her miniature arc in chapter one of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When her optimism and seeing too much of the good in people gets the best of her, not only are there consequences, but the characters spell out that this was due to this was due to your views. This was due to um, seeing too much of this good in people. And it's good to have it's good to have optimism, but you can't be this naive or you will get lost out here in the Wild West. That's absolutely right. But I think that fits into how she interacts with the rest of the cast. So I want to revisit her arc in Chapter 1 soon. But uh, Virginia, I, I find her very likable. She's optimistic and positive and earnest without being obnoxious. Mm-hmm. And when she gets into arguments with Jet, who's very, very uh, selfish and pessimistic, like, it, it, it doesn't feel, um, I don't know, it doesn't feel gross or unfair. Like, like, like Jet has some you know, has some, you know, edgy boy retort and, and, but, but Virginia's sort of resolute and then Clive and Gallows laugh at Jet. And it's a, mm-hmm. it, it, these kind of interactions that, um, make these characters feel a, a, a little bit beyond the tropes where they start, where they ori- like originally reside in. I, I don't want to, I don't think this, uh, these characters are necessarily tropey, but they, you know, they, they have to have a, star- a starting point in anime tropes to a degree. Because uh, <laughs> this game's a little bit anime. It's, uh, these are early 2000s polygons, uh, not really cel-shaded yet, uh, a little bit rougher than cel-shading. Like, like, because we've got some very beautiful cel-shading in the PS2 GameCube era with games like, oh, you know, the Wind Wakers and the Dragon Quest VIII of the world. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and this game, I think, visually isn't quite up to that level. But, but, but these are clean, brightly colored anime polygons for the important characters. And Virginia, I mean, she wears basically a pink frock and a cowgirl hat uh, and wields dual pistols. Like, that, that, that's a look. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think she has a very, I think she has a very unique style. And, um, and she's also a character that isn't um, really sexualized, which it's not to say that, like, sexualizing characters is, like, on the whole um, a positive or negative, but um she's there really isn't any sort of at least as i've seen any sort of like relationship thing with her or anything she is just she's on a mission she's traveling with she's traveling with these three men and i believe all of them are older than her and it they're just friends and there's no kind of there's no weirdness there it's just traveling companions yeah um and I don't, I don't even get like a little sister vibe from her or anything. Or, or <laughs> yeah, and there's, and there's not a lot of, of, of male gaze sort of moving up and de- moving the camera up and down Virginia a lot. She's just, uh, she, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think her design's cute, but I don't, I don't think there's, um, I don't think they're really, I, I don't think there's any horny undertones in this game where, which I found, all the time when I was playing Trails of Cold Steel a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, 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 but let's move on. I, 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 I enjoy Virginia a lot and I want to talk about her optimism and how it relates to, uh, J- Janice and Maya later. But, uh, mm. n- next we have Gallows who, uh, has some, you know, in his design, there are some native American stereotypes 
that I don't mm-hmm. that I don't always like, but I think his fringe jacket is dope, at least. Yeah, I, I think aesthetically his I think aesthetically his design is is interesting and cool. It, but you're definitely right that he um kind of has this sort of uh magical indigenous person trope to him but but i think that's kind of just the starting that's just kind of the starting point with him and yeah and i think the writers kind of get out of that rather quickly the magical indigenous uh like shamanism mysticism thing with gallows in his village uh i, I think starts from an okay place like these are people that worship phil gaia like as like an earth mother or earth spirit but and mm-hmm. uh, and the totems guardians that you find throughout the game, which are basically the game's summons and some of the game's skill, skill system, uh, I, I I don't I don't get a racist vibe from it. I, I get a more uh, these are people close to the earth and they have earth powers and these powers are real and strong and uh, and gallows is part of your connection to them. Like I, I don't mm-hmm. that that doesn't leave a bad taste in my mouth. But I also enjoy that you know. He's a he has the largest frame of the main characters and he has the most HP, but he also has he's a magic character and not a physical character and he fights with a sawed off shotgun which I think is a <laughs> is a is a is a cool uh, you know uh, weapon style for him, but uh, and I also like that he's uh, probably has the roughest edge of any of the main characters, like like he he's not edgy the way Jet feels sometimes, but he's sort of the. Uh, um, you know, if any character is like into roughhousing and and womanizing, but never really successful at either of them, it's Gallows. So he's like he's if if these were the Ninja Turtles, he would be the party dude. Yeah, um, and and also and also definitely Jet would be cool but rude, and uh, Clive wins. Win, Clive would uh, do machines. <laughs> yeah, in this absolutely. in this uh, in this analog that I didn't think out ahead of time, but. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, um, uh, Gallows is a sort of beefy magic user with a shotgun, and I I enjoy that. But let's move on to Jet. Uh, Jet is me. I, I think Jet has a really cool look. I like the bandana. I like the machine gun that's sort of wrapped in bandages. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. But I do not like that. Uh, sort of fifty percent of his lines are him about working alone, and the other fifty percent are, uh, are 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 asking about where they're going to get their next paycheck from. Yeah, his yeah, I I'd agree that his his writing is probably the weakest of the four so far, and I, I think so far he's kind of the most if if we're going to say tropey the most tropey he's he's the loner bounty hunter but he has amnesia and doesn't yeah. know the, doesn't the, know who he is and the, the loner bounty hunter thing I sort of roll my eyes at a little bit but mm-hmm. the amnesia thing. Uh, Makes me think that I I don't think Jet is bad a bad character. I think he's definitely underdeveloped. If he has amnesia, mm-hmm. I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna call that a Chekhov's gun, I think in the second half of the game we're gonna learn about his past and it will be important. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, be, because again, he feels less developed than the other three and and has the least amount of personality of the three. But I think that's room to grow because also I'm I mean I've only played through the first third of the game or so I think. So there's a, there's plenty of room for growth with the jet, but I, I at least like him in battle. I mean, he's the second fastest character and the second strongest. Uh, his gun is the second strongest, so hmm. that's a that's a combination I like. And he has a cool bandana. Yeah, he's yeah he's super useful. 
And uh, speaking of super useful, we have Clive, who is basically Ooh, the he- Clive. he's basically the heavy artillery of the team. He has a giant sniper rifle and uh, uh, snazzy uh, snazzy glasses. He's uh, and green anime hair. He's a he's he's sort of the I don't know the the most sophisticated of the group. He's um he he's smart. He's been a a drifter longer than the other three, and uh, he he hits like an absolute truck. He's the slowest character, but also the most powerful. And uh, I, I just wish it didn't cost so much money to upgrade your guns because i would i would put all of my money into clive if i could oh yeah i've put i've put a lot of my upgrades into clive so far um just you know upgrading how many shots he can use before reloading and the shot power so yeah he does hit less but yeah he's he comes in hot when he does um yeah, because because he acts last, I always have my first three characters like lower enemy defense or, mm-hmm. or 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 boost next attack that kind of thing, and then have just Clive do nothing but shoot and reload. Oh yeah, <laughs> because yeah, he does so much damage that it seems like a waste for him to do anything uh, else besides more damage. Yeah, this is not this is not your summon or magic boy. This is no. this is your shoot boy. <laughs> his, his magic power is uh, okay, not great. I think Jets. Uh, I think Jet has less magic than Clive does, but still, mm-hmm. you, you want Clive Clive doing nothing besides shooting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he also has a uh, he has a wife and daughter, which I was I was a bit surprised by. I mean, I thought Drifters sort of didn't really have families to go back to. It is a little it is a little weird how how much time he does not spend at home though, and when you see his wife, she kind of alludes to this, like, "Hey, uh, didn't think you were coming home now," and you know. He has, so he has his wife and daughter, and daughter's really happy to see him. Um, and it's it's somewhat somewhat subtle, but the wife is kind of saying, "Hey, can you uh, not leave all the time?" <laughs> so, um, but I, I think Clive is I, so far. I think Clive is probably my favorite character. Um, he's a uh, kind of a historian archaeologist mm-hmm. um which already endears me to him yeah and... he, he used to be like the bodyguard for a scientist and mm-hmm. uh and him and this scientist and maybe and maybe their uh other people in their team were going from ruins to ruins studying them from a historical uh like our historian archaeologist standpoint but then uh but then Clive, I think, failed to protect the scientist, and, and uh, the scientist died. So now Clive is trying to continue his research, was my understanding. Yeah, that's yeah, that seems to be the gist of it. Right. Which is pretty cool. I mean, I, I like his cool trench coat and his giant gun and the fact that he's a family man. It's, it's, it, it's a good take for this kind of character. Yeah, and once again, with, with all these characters that we've laid out, these this is your core team. Um they have there are these three people who there's four people whose paths probably shouldn't have crossed i guess and they and they uh allude to this quite a bit in it where they keep saying oh yeah we'll go to the next town and then we'll go off on our way and they basically do that three times until (laughs) until they're like you know what this is great let's just keep going together because we keep going to the same place Except for Jet, who keeps insisting he works alone, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but tags along anyway. 
but yeah, you know, you know, he's digging the company, and he's he's not as much of a loner as he says. <laughs> but it, it is remarkable that um, these are your four main characters for the whole game, unless something I am completely not anticipating happens in the second half. And uh, you basically meet them in the first five minutes of the game, and in hour one, they're traveling together, and in hour two, you have a vague idea of a world-spanning conflict, and you have a uh, this um, uh, the Arcana system, or I should say the Guardian system, with shared skills between these four characters. It does not waste a lot of time giving you a full team and a full lineup to work with. And that, uh, and that feels, I don't know if I want to say modern, but that feels forward-thinking. Like, here's your party, and, let's, and it's going to be about this party dynamic the whole rest of the game. And I appreciate that. Yeah, when, when I was first playing through the prologues and just having one character for each of these kind of combat scenarios, I was, I was definitely not too enthused about it. But I, I think that kind of works in favor of the game because once everything comes together and you have all four of them in your party, you see, oh, this, was, this is what the combat was. This is cool. I like it. Yeah, and speaking of combat, we've made a couple allusions in this episode already to uh, guns and reloading and the different speed at which characters act and things like Guardians and Arcana. And I uh, definitely want to talk about that a little bit right now. Um, the combat in this game is turn-based, and um, there's a lot of weirdnesses to combat in Wild Arms 3 that make it feel pretty unique. Um, every character has a gun, called, which is called an arm. Uh, arms are like relics of the past, and each of them has an unusual name. Uh, like And in Virginia's opening prologue chapter, she mentions that her dad taught her how to use arms, and she thinks she can, and she knows she can survive in the in the desert of Filgaya because she'll always have her shooting skills to fall back on, and uh, which makes you give an like give the feeling that um, living by your guns and maintaining your guns is sort of important for the drifter lifestyle, and they and it communicates in combat as well because your guns all have specific stats like critical hit rate and attack and how many bullets they hold and their weight, which, which surprisingly does factor in. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you basically, any kind of attack will have you spend one bullet. And, uh, and when you guard, you reload back to your max bullet capacity and upgrading your guns and patterning, patterning your attacks around these upgrades is huge because Clive starts with two damn bullets and that is not enough. <laughs> No, we need more. We need more Clive. Yeah, I upgraded him to three bullets basically immediately, and I've been doing okay with just three bullets the game, with the game so far. But also, um, your character's speeds are pretty rigid. Um, Virginia's the fastest, then Jet is the second fastest, then Gallows, then Clive, and mm -hmm. en enemy speeds will be somewhere in that Jet Gallows range mostly. I, I, I'm I, I'm not even sure. I can probably count on one hand the number of enemies slower than Clive in this game. But, like, giving your character skills, which mostly come from guardians, basically spirits that you can equip to your characters like, I don't know, like Esper's in Final Fantasy VI, uh, like, equipping guardians to your characters and equipping items to the guardians and upgrading your guardians and uh, upgrading, like, equipping personal skills granted by the guardians to your characters <laughs> gives a lot of skill customization. So uh, I found myself in a, like, in a pattern of... Virginia and Jet cast boosting things. Uh, Gallows always heals people whenever uh, whenever someone has low health, and Clive only shoots. And once all the boosting stuff is in place, uh, Jet can shoot as well. Like I, I, I you, you can sort of um, de determine and follow patterns like that 
once you have combinations of skills set up. But that was just a really long-winded way of saying there's a lot of tinkering in this game. There is a lot of tinkering in this game. And I I use kind of a similar system where um, Virginia is kind of um, basically whatever needs to happen first in a battle. So she has like the fragile ability um, so that I can lower a boss's defense, you know, right off the bat. Um, and then Jet kind of alternates between being a the sort of same thing, a, a buffer or a deep or debuffer on a boss and shooting and then gallows um, for healing because I can't trust his shotgun. The shotgun looks cool, but I think it's the least useful weapon because I mean, J- Jed and Clive are just uh, straight up much more powerful and Virginia mm-hmm. has lower damage than uh, gallows, I think, but uh, her guns also weigh nothing. So you can get Gatling going extremely easy with them. Um, and we should mention every character has a special ability called Gatling where they can use force points to basically unload a bunch of attacks at once and, uh, and, and it'll just automatically spend all of your remaining bullets if you have enough uh, FP to use them. And I mean, shoot, we haven't even talked about FP yet. There, there's no traditional MPSP system in this game or TP if you're a Tales of fan where you basically have a, a resource that starts high and you spend it for special attacks and then you heal it again with items. In Wild Arms 3, it starts at a low level. It has a max of, I think, 100. And then you slowly gain it over the course of battle and then spend it for big attacks. Every, every character has a, has a force ability that, you, that spends FP. Um, uh, Virginia allows her to multi-target items. Gallows allows it uh, to multi-target spells, and both of those are really good. And then, and then Clive does, is a guaranteed double damage 100% snipe, which I use basically whenever I can. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, but FP is like a is a slowly building resource, like a like the super meter in a fighting game, or 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 the super moves meter in Skies of Arcadia, and not a spending resource that starts at a hundred percent and then drains as you use as you you use abilities. So like FP raising abil- um items are very very uncommon. I've only found a couple uh, carrots that <laughs> give me bonus FP, and I'm hoarding them a little bit because I'm worried I, I I'll need them for some unforeseen boss fight, but. Uh, it, but but yeah, it, it almost feels like uh, an RPG battle resource in reverse. Yeah, it, it in in that system also combining with the the vitality stat in it, which right. does not function like any other vitality stat that I've seen, where you're you have your main hit points, um, and when those go down, you can replenish your hit points by utilizing this zero to one hundred vitality stat. Yeah, it's basically a second health bar almost. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like the latest, <laughs> the latest Decidia, <laughs> but uh, not, not sure. terrible. Not terrible. Um, <laughs> um, it's it's a really it's a really interesting system. I don't think I've seen a battle system quite like this in another um, in another RPG. Um, and those carrots, yeah, they're hard to find in the world, but there's a side quest which will help you get you more. So I don't know if, I don't know if you want me to mention that. I, th- but... I think I've already seen talk about it. It's a, it's basically you, you, uh, it's a garden where you can plant things and then, and then get more by planting. Yes. All right. And there's because there's because, a... because like you heal with berries and and get FP with carrots. I'm like, hmm, both of these sound plantable. Yeah, and. And that's another really cool aspect of um, kind of 
gameplay integration into the world building is that it's hard to find these carrots and these heel berries because you're basically in a desert. Um, yeah, and there's only one item shop, and it's a wandering merchant. Yeah. That, okay, that really burned my ass in one point of the game. Because <laughs> I uh, I knew he was a wandering merchant. I knew he wasn't always available. So I bought um, some status-restoring items from him, but not, but not enough. I And then in one dungeon, uh, I got a status effect. I, okay, I, I fought a boss that gives a status effect that prevents you from getting experience at the end of the battle. It's the it, it's the uh, it's the amnesia or forgetful stat, which is like a which, oh, yeah. which is like green question marks floating around your character, and mm-hmm. then and then there was another boss right after him. So I had to do two boss battles with two characters that were that got amnesia, so they didn't get any exp from those two boss battles. I was furious. Oh, that's terrible. And then I I, I even restored my old save and tried to replay it, but there was no way I had no way of getting the right item. Uh, to restore forgetful status because the the wandering merchant had moved on to the next town, oh, and and I had no and I had no way of getting the toy hammers I needed to restore forgetful, and I so I fought the boss again, and the same thing happened. I, I ended the battle with two characters with forgetful. I was really upset, <laughs> but oh. uh, so I, and that might set me back for exp wise a little bit, but I'll so I'll probably have to grind later to make up for it. But uh, as a result, um, two of my characters are about a thousand exp ahead of the other two. Oh no, I I love some of the some of the status restoring items in this game because you have ones where like oh you're poisoned here's an antidote you have a disease here's medicine yeah oh disease uh, disease sucks because disease means you can't be you can't be healed by items or spells yeah and and then for some of them it's like oh uh, here's a pinwheel because you have. I, I, what is I think the, it's I think it's the pinwheel cur, cures confusion. Yeah, you're confused. So here's a pinwheel, or uh, you have amnesia. So here's a toy hammer because I guess you're nostalgic for your childhood. I, I, I get the idea of um, someone's forgetful, so you pop them on the head with the with the hammer, and then, oh. and then their, mind, their mind is restored. But maybe I just watched uh. <laughs> maybe I just watched a lot of Looney Tunes, and, uh, and that would and, make sense. And then Looney Tunes give you very very distorted ideas of how concussions work. <laughs> so I, I guess I was taking more of a taking more of someone who is experienced a bit darker and some someone's experiencing dementia or something like that and you're <laughs> like hey here's this toy hammer that you used to love and you're like you're right I love this toy hammer <laughs> <laughs> a, nost- a nostalgia toy hammer yeah um, exactly. but the uh, there's an um uh Status effects can be powerful and quite Im- quite impeding in this game. Like I, again, I was stymied pretty hard by uh, uh, by having the forgetful status for two boss fights in a row, and uh, it was against the, the the second of the weirdo scientists. And then he and then he summons a like a big guardian robot lion to fight you later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's pretty early in chapter two. I'm I'm only an hour or two past there, in fact. Uh, and, and and these status effects last beyond battle, and status restoring items aren't always easy to find because there's this wandering merchant that you have to track down, and there isn't a consistent item shop in every town. There are inns in every town, and those those will restore status, but the getting like items are a little scarce, and that uh, and like you said, that sort of fits in with this post-apocalypse, largely desert setting. Like like resources are few, and you have to scrap for them a little bit and uh there's a there's a an arms upgrading shop in every town but arms upgrades are expensive so i am finding myself saving money or a gela as it's called a lot of the time 
I'm saving Gela a lot just because I want that next upgrade for Clive or Jet. Same here. That's that's pretty much all I all I spend my money on in the game. Um, and one thing that's helpful is with with experience. Have you been using the lucky cards? Yeah, I, I have been using lucky cards for boss fights because uh, mm-hmm. it'll double your experience or um or make your experience gain for that fight increase by a hundred percent. Because you can repeat them to change your multiplier from 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0 etc but it, oh. it, it, it won't it won't help me with that uh it, it didn't help me with that freaking um that that forgetful status boss but uh, i have been doing that especially since i think that boss exp is pro- um disproportionately way higher than regular encounter exp oh yeah it's it's some it's some really great xp that you get from it yeah i typically start off those boss encounters with using um, Virginia's Mystic to cast the mm-hmm. lucky card on all of them, and then second turn using Fragile, and then just wailing on the boss. <laughs> and also, uh, Gela cards uh, increase the uh, double the the Gela drop from any enemy. So I also use a Gela card on the boss whenever I do a new boss fight. Is uh, th- that helps me? But um, one other thing, we were talking about the different status effects in this game. And uh, how some stats are unusual, like the, like the Vitality stat and the FP stat. I, I want to talk about those a little bit more and then introduce one other thing. Um, in, in, a, in many, many typical RPGs, especially your Dragon Quests and Final Fantasies of the world, you'll, uh, you, you have your HP that represents your health, your MP that represents your uh, ability to use skills, and as you forge through a dungeon, as your HP depletes, you use MP to restore, or items to restore your HP etc etc and like mp is a non-renewable resource or a harder to renew resource while hp is sort of your the character's life right mm-hmm. in in this game in wild arms 3 your fp is your replacement for mp but it's not a depleting resource it's a resource that starts low and gets higher during battles and you can't cast use fp to cast spells to heal yourself outside of battle there's very little menu healing in this game which is mm-hmm. where it's all over older RPGs because you have this vitality stat that starts at 100 and then after every battle if you if your health is below 100% you use a little vitality to get back up to 100%. So it gets it it removes that loop of menu healing in this uh, that you see in so many RPGs and only becomes uh, an HP only becomes a bad bad resource outside of battle if your vitality goes all the way to 0. So, so that's interesting. This vitality stat, which you can restore in dungeons by finding orange crystals, l- lets you get away from that. And also, this game has random encounters, but you can see random encounters coming with an exclamation point above your head. And you have an- another renewable resource called Encounter Points, or, or ECP, <laughs> that lets you skip random encounters if you see the exclamation point and just press the circle button. It, it's crazy. You have these RPG loops of getting into random encounters and, or even being overwhelmed by them. And having you know restoring your HP with your non-renewable resources or your or your items in menus outside of battle, but Wild Arms Three subverts both of those things by giving you outs with vitality and encounter points. That's really interesting to me, because I, I went through the first couple dungeons and I'm like, wait a second, vitality is healing me automatically, and if I don't and if I don't feel like doing encounters, I can usually skip a couple with encounter points. These, this is letting me skip two annoying parts of old RPG traditionalism. Yeah, it's a. I, that's been one one of my favorite things. Is it's fascinating how the uh, the the encounter points work because of the different exclamation points you can get. You know, if you have a 
red one, um, that means you're out of ECP and you have to do this fight. Um, if you have a white one, it'll take anywhere from what I've seen is one to three points away, yeah, um, d- which yeah, I think is... Yeah, depending on how dire the encounter is or how many enemies are in it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that's a really great system because, you know, if you skip a one encounter one, it's like, well, that's it's not too powerful. But if you skip an encounter and it's three, you realize, oh, I might be in a place that's a little difficult for me. And and also there's green exclamation points, which Mm -hmm. is when you're finding enemies that are way below your level. So I think you can skip those for zero encounter points. You can just exactly you, you, can, you can just not not deal with them. It's a really good system that encourages you to do a little bit of 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 leveling and fighting a normal amount of enemies when they're at an appropriate level. But also, uh, like you know, you know, it's 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 not infinite. You uh, if you if you skip too many battles, there will be a point where you can't skip anymore. And it's it, it's very smart and. Um, and feels unusual for a two thousand for a two thousand two RPG because again sometimes this game wears its age on its sleeve especially with uh, like the clumsy character movement the way enemies just sort of like all pause during an attack and then immediately start running around again as soon as you as soon as something is cast <laughs> and and, yeah. and the uh, and the sort of the the low texture polygons that are most of the game's visuals but it it so it sometimes it feels extremely two thousand two and sometimes it feels like goodness gracious why hasn't then why hasn't this idea been in 100 rpgs why why is it the first time i've run into encounter points and vitality points yeah it definitely it definitely feels like this sort of this sort of game at the crossroads of um of more traditional systems and things that were more cutting edge that i agree i wish they would have caught on um in a lot of ways so because I'm, I, I mean, I've been playing RPGs for 25 years or so. Uh, I'm basically over random encounters. I, I, I've, <laughs> said, I, I've said on other podcasts that I would love it for any game with random encounters give you the option to turn them on and off, just like Bravely Default. Like, uh, th- that is the in- random encounter system I want in every game. But this game, giving you encounter points to, you know, to mitigate random encounters and to, uh, and to punish you from using that system too often feels like a good balance. It's like, it's like, it's like why have I only encountered this in, <laughs> encounter? I'm using that word way too many uh, in, an, <laughs> in, in, a, in a show called Retro Encounter of all things. Um, but like, like, why haven't I seen this systems like this more? It seems, it feels smart and it, uh, and like when I'm going through a dungeon, I feel like I can control the rate of encounters that I have and that, and that feels great. But uh, before, I, I, we, we do need to get into story a little bit later, but I, I want to talk about dungeons now that I've said dungeon a few times in the past uh, paragraph or so. This game has, it has some dungeon puzzles. Boy, does it. There, you find items uh, called tools that are unique to each character, and they do, you know, a, a variety of little functions. Like uh, a Jet has a boomerang that can hit faraway targets. Uh, Clive can drop bombs that destroy cracks walls and, and some obstacles. Virginia has can do a little fire thing to light candles. Gallows can do a little ice thing to, to unlight candles. But, like, mm-hmm. every character has a couple of these tool skills, and, I, and I've, I've found second tools for a few characters, uh, but only recently. These dungeon puzzles will have you using all of the tools at your disposal. That these are fully three D, multi tiered, puzzle ass puzzles. And for me, like it, it feels a little retro because uh, uh, retro encounter. The other half of my podcast. <laughs> um, it, it feels a little retro having pu- having these puzzle rooms, sort of uh, like dungeon to dungeon. It feels like Lufia too sometimes. 
but it's not unwelcome. Like I don't think any of these puzzles are brutal deal breakers. They're 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 good distractions. But I, again, I'm only at the thirty or I'm only at the thirty percent mark of this game. Maybe. Uh, there's I've liked I've liked quite a few of the puzzles. Some of them have kind of have leaps in logic that you know I've used a guide for a little bit of this, and I've been like, okay, you know, I'm. I'm an adult. I'm, I've spent too long on this. <laughs> I've spent too long on this. I need to just find some sort of hint to it. And then, then when I discovered that, it's like, really, that seems that seems like a bit of a stretch. Um, there's there's one puzzle that I was doing this morning. Um, that's I I suppose I suppose I won't spoil it, but there's going to be a laser. Um, and it's probably not going to be the solution that you'd guess. And if you haven't seen some mirrors, that is also not going to be the solution you're going to guess. But they're both solved by the same thing. So I'm sure. I'm sure when you get to there, we'll talk about it in the second episode. <laughs> so, so there are lasers and mirrors in some room, but the solution does not involve reflecting the laser with mirrors. Um, there are two, there are two separate <laughs> puzzles. There's the lasers and the mirrors and both are solved by the same thing, but both should not be solved by this thing. Uh, okay. <laughs> you're already giving me a headache, but yeah, exactly. I, I, I've been much less stymied by puzzles and much more stymied by accidentally skipping doors because the camera is a little rigid. Um, yes. it, it's not totally an isometric view with this game. And there's a really annoying camera that you control with the uh, shoulder buttons but it's really easy to just if you have a sort of straight north south east west orientation on the camera you can't see doors to the rear or sides of you and it, it's not, it's not like an isometric view where you can see multiple angles from a neutral position uh this is a not great camera and i've gotten lost in dungeons not because i can't solve a puzzle but because i skipped a door because of the camera being bad it's that's frustrating um to me much more than the puzzles are yeah, my my biggest frustration with this so far has been the running. Uh, oh, yeah. What, I, I don't understand why the characters, one, have to have this kind of lead up where they're like, ready, and go. <laughs> and it's back, it's, also, back to, it's back to Looney Tunes or Sonic the Hedgehog where you have to get your legs going a little bit before you can, before and, you can push off. But then you can only go in one direction. <laughs> When you're running, you can't turn, really. It's like the, your turn radius is very poor. Yeah, it's, um, th there really isn't a turn radius. It's more, it's uh, like there's really, instead of holding a dash button to run, to move twice as quickly, it, the dash button has you go in a straight line and you, you skid and drift a little bit if you try to change direction while you're running. That, that, that's another, you know, weakness of this game being a 2002 PlayStation 2 game, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I love the fact that I have these elite young bounty hunters, but Lord knows that they try to turn, it's like trying to drift in a semi-truck. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, like... <laughs> At least Gallows doesn't tip over if you take too sharp a turn. That would be that, that would be a, a design weakness. Yeah. But, or, or, or when you're on a ledge and they wobble and they're like, ah! Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you got, you got to press circle to go back to the ledge or, or uh, um, X to jump off the ledge. It's, it's, it's confusing. But mm -hmm. anyway, uh, let's go back to the story a little bit. In the first chapter of the game, when everyone's united, they immediately go back to uh, Gallows' hometown, much to his dismay, 
where uh, <laughs> where his grandmother explains that there's this big demon threatening the world, which was rendered into a desert by a demon war decade uh, centuries ago. But the but by meeting guardians, you'll be able to um, combat the threat. So you immediately get uh, these four elemental guardians, which are, which are boss battles that are basically the the, the, the four guardian spirits of the north, south, east, west in, Ch- in Chinese folklore. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. It's, it's a white tiger, a black turtle, a blue dragon, and a red phoenix, except they're all stylized a little differently. Huh. So I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, That's they, really they, cool, they, though. They have strange names. They're, they're not called Byako, Suzaku, uh, Seiryu, um, Genbu, but they're, you know, they're basically those four uh, uh, mythological beasts. Uh, then you go on a quest to find this artifact that is being chased after by Janice, who is a uh, another drifter, um, with his own, with, who has his own two buddies, Dario and and Romero. Uh, I, I think I think that they might be named after uh, spaghetti western director directors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but the um, or maybe actors. But uh, in one early dungeon, uh, Janice and his gang help you. Uh, they're they're the boss fight they meet on the train. But shortly after, uh, Virginia decides to trust Janice and let and let his team accompany them. And Janice takes that opportunity to uh, steal the item at the end of the dungeon. And uh, that's sort of Virginia's first uh, reckoning that her trusting nature and optimism maybe isn't the best attitude. And then one dungeon later, you're looking for the second of these three shields, and you meet another gang, uh, Maya Schrodinger, who has... Uh, two al- who has her younger brother and a bodyguard with an afro who fights with the same katana techniques that Jack does in Wild Arms 1. And then a cat, which makes me wonder if this is a Schrodinger's cat reference. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> uh, but, like, they're a really goofy anime quartet. But uh, you-, you fight them in a boss battle. And then at the very end of that fight, uh, basically Maya, Cha- who who's the same age as Virginia and even dresses similarly to Virginia, kind of like a... Like like a sort of an upper class girly frock that that would that would be like like you know like a society woman in the old west or something, <laughs> like and and Maya challenges Virginia's worldview, saying, "Hey, you have to be hardened if you want to be a drifter. You're just you're just play acting at being a drifter. While I'm act while I, I actually care about survival and care about the life." But uh, then Virginia basically snaps back at her after you defeat her in a, after you defeat Maya's team in a boss battle and saying, "I care about justice and helping others, and I believe in myself and my teammates." And you can just like f right off. Like Virginia's answer to Janice and Maya challenging her worldview is, "I'm not going to change. I'm going to fight for justice, even if you think that's ridiculous." And that just makes me like Virginia even more. <laughs> yeah, I think I think both Janice and Maya. Um, are kind of are kind of cynical in this game. I mean, Janice more so than than Maya. Um, and there's a couple of times where they allude to um, them kind of being in the same place as Virginia in in a past life and or, and or years before. Um, and with Janice especially, he kind of brings this up. And there's a bit of uh, there's more than a bit of sadness to him when he brings when he tells Virginia about this life or he scolds her for being so, for being so optimistic and, and naive um, and kind of says, you know, I was like, I was like that once, but I couldn't survive like that. And I think it kind of colors Janice as a, already kind of a tragic character. Yeah. Um, Janice has this attitude that uh, 
I don't know, like like might makes right or maybe only the strong survive. Mm-hmm. And at, maybe at one point he was uh, more optimistic like Virginia was, but then something happened to him that maybe hardened him. I'm, I'm speculating now. I, I haven't played far enough to know this for sure. But then at the end of chapter one, you find the artifact that's unlocked with the three shields that you found in the previous dungeons. And Janice... Uh, finds this item is, is it the the spear of darkness or the dark spear the dark spear yeah yeah the dark he finds the dark spear which has you you know fight him in a challenging boss battle and then after uh the ruin that you're on crumbles and uh maya's group janice's group and virginia's group all escape three mysterious robed figures use the dark spear to turn janice into a demon <laughs> whoa and again, I, I'm not. I, I'm maybe halfway through chapter two, maybe less than halfway, but chapter two is basically meeting these three new robed figures um, as new antagonists, and they apparently are trying to revive demon technology or use demon technology. And uh, uh, one of them, uh, well, two of them are creeps, uh, and one of and uh, and one of them is sort of more level-headed. And one of the creepy ones is a, is a girl who is a woman who believes that she can be uh, she can have everlasting youth and beauty with demon technology. So that that gives you an idea of what their motivations are. But they uh, they use the dark spear to turn Janice into a monster, and he becomes sort of their enforcer. You fight Janice a bunch of times already, even in the first half of the game. Probably more later. I, again, I'm I'm less than halfway through, I think. But. Uh, they're sort of the antagonists right now, and what they're doing is they're looking for new guardians, just like the just like the uh, the, the the four beasts that you get in the in the second hour of the game. Um, they're trying to drain their energy for their own technology or own use, and they're also building a base of some kind, which makes me think that they're mad scientists or mad engineers. Um, and, and that's what the thrust of chapter two seems to be: these three mysterious robed figures, ancient technology. Create, uh, reviving or creating demons and sort of trying to track down as many guardians as you can to, and have them join your side so they aren't corrupted by these people. Does that? Am I getting the gist of it mostly? Because I'm not. I'm not as far as you are. Yeah, that seems to be that seems to be pretty accurate. Cool. And uh, one other thing I should say about Janice and Maya, uh, um, or, or Maya's team, I should say. Uh, again. The, Maya's sword wielding ally uh, has a lot of the same moves and same sword style as Jack from Wild Arms 1. Janice fights with a bayonet, which I think is, and I think uses some moves from the main character of Wild Arms 2. Uh, and, and there's, and just a lot of move names and place names and character names seem to be references to either Wild Arms or other Western games. I'm still blown away that I think there's a Cormano from Sunset Riders <laughs> reference. Which is completely insane to me. Like what, when I saw, like, is there really a character named Carmano, and he's really wearing pink? No, like, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm, I seem to be noticing them more and more as I keep playing. It's it's full of all these little, it's full of all these little references to you know, to other RPGs, and just it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a quiet love letter to just westerns in general. I don't know. I don't take umbrage exactly, but I think that it's a little mm. bit car- more cartoony and silly than Quiet Love Letter, <laughs> because, because, yeah. it, because this game has some humor in its writing, and it and it's it knows it's making these references, and they're with a wink and a grin, and, and not and not you know some grandiose grandiosity or anything. It's it's this is a slightly goofy, slightly anime RPG that is yeah. that you know has characters named after David Carradine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and by Quiet Love Letter, I. 
I think I'm, I meant more so that like these references, they're quick and they pass you by um, right, and yeah. you might need to go back to them. Yeah. It's not necessarily like, <laughs> it's not like the artist where it was, you know, a, a love letter to silent film or something like that. It's a little different than that, but I will, but I will say that this game has some pretty great writing um, and a pretty strong localization. I'm less certain about the localization. Like I, I am noticing some, you know, some it can't be helped, some sort of like oh, like over translated dialogue that feels like a like a bad manga scanlation. But the uh, but I, I think the script is good, and um, there are definitely plot hooks keeping me going. But the localization, it it, it feels you know, it feels like a 2002 localization. Uh, this wasn't a enormous budget game. This was a probably a pretty good team from Sony Computer Entertainment America localizing this. But it's not you know it's it doesn't have maybe you know as much incredible attention to detail and personality as like a you know uh best of exceed kind of um kind of translation yeah i i get that i actually so actually looked um i actually looked into the localization a bit and squaresoft actually localized this for some reason oh uh, which is super uh, it that's an odd choice it seems cuz sony i guess was kind of peeling off from from having a more direct involvement in the Wild Arms franchise, despite it, you know, still coming out uh, on their consoles and everything. But well, um, I, I mean, uh, the games have always been published by Sony, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that, I think that they're all of those Wild Arms games are Sony exclusive, to my knowledge, unless maybe there was a. Uh... Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe they maybe they eventually got GameCube or uh, or Wii ports or something that I'm unaware of. But I, hmm, I'm not sure where if I've even seen a Square logo anywhere here. This this would have been before the merger because the merger was 2003 and this game came out in both Japan and North America in 2002. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I've I found this on the uh, uh, on the TV tropes uh, page for. Yeah, maybe it's the kind of thing they have to wait to the credits to find. Yeah. Hmm. It's fascinating, though. That is interesting. But uh, one other thing that I think is really interesting about this game is the uh, the music tracks really, really want to embrace that Wild West theme. Uh, uh, and this is not Wild Arms 3, but um, the opening theme to Wild Arms 1, Into the Wilderness, is a awesome, awesome, awesome uh, RPG opening track. And uh, Into the Wilderness isn't in Wild Arms 3 in its, completely, in its completion, but the motif or chorus from it is the whistle that plays when you rest in an inn. <laughs> oh! Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, I and like that whistle. <laughs> yeah, and, and in general, there's, you know, there, there's a, a lot of sort of open guitar chords, a lot of whistling and wind instruments. Uh, it's a, you know, sort of a uh, Ennio Morricone-influenced uh, soundtrack, which I enjoy very much. Absolutely. I mean, there's pretty there's pretty much like a, a few months in high school where all I listened to was Ennio Morricone soundtracks, and so this was just right up my alley. It, the really good Ennio Morricone songs just have amazing titles. Like I I want to play a game or read a book called The Ecstasy of Gold. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> oh, amazing. The the only thing with the music is that I wish that there was a few more tracks. I don't know how many are actually on the soundtrack for this, but I'm just hearing a lot of the same the same stuff, uh, the same tracks for different situations. Where I wish there was uh, a little bit more variety. But as we said, this was not a a massive budget uh, game or or anything, and the tracks that are present are quite good. 
Yeah, it's it's a likable um, audio landscape, but they, I think I mean they probably do repeat tracks too a little bit too much for, uh, you know, battles, um, world map, dungeons, and there's there's and there's a lot of dungeoning and a lot of exploration on the world map. But I, I think towns mostly have had unique themes, and mm-hmm. uh, and and the music that you do get is pretty good. Uh, one other thing, I, I mentioned how it's sort of I sort of think it's amusing how characters sort of frantically move bet- uh, around in combat semi-randomly between actions uh and, and there's not like targeted or ranged attacks there's no area effect or in a line kind of positional moves there's just sort of effect one or effect all kind of uh spells mm-hmm. so that, that allows them to play with uh they don't have to worry about space so they can play with presentation a little bit um battles on a horseback are sort of fought, <laughs> are sort of fought while on horseback and holding your arm out, aiming at the different enemies that are also running alongside you, and that's just great. Especially when a really awkward enemy, like an orc or a tree, is is is, is huffing and puffing to catch <laughs> to catch up with you on your horse. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, the 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 large uh, I think the large bipedal uh, um, boars that <laughs> that boars or orcs that run after you, and you're like, I am I, I think I'm on orcs, a full grown yeah. horse. And you're this, uh, you're this sort of uh, bipedal pig orc with a, a butcher's knife <laughs> or a cleaver of some sort, and uh, you're keeping up with me. How? It, it's an amusing visual, but also just it's a it's a cool visual. Just riding on horseback over the uh, over the plain, and uh, and then and sort of like when you're in battle, you're uh, you continue riding on horseback. It's it's a good look, even though. Uh, like, like I like being able to ride around a horse, although it's not you know crucial to the gameplay necessarily. You only need the horse for like one part of the game to jump over a ravine. Yeah, that's that's a, a horse with some amazing jumping cross to basically jump over a canyon. But yeah, suspend suspend your disbelief. <laughs> I man, I play JRPGs and I watch Tokusatsu shows, so I uh, so I suspend disbelief extremely easily. <laughs> I, I, I will I will accept some true nonsense in the game if it gives me a moment of satisfaction or style. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of uh, of like Ukuhara anime series. So you know, it's like uh, you know a, a cop of taking something out of someone's butt and then doing some sort of jazzy pop song. Yeah, that's fine. That makes sense. One that's my, realistic. Uh, yeah, one of my favorite <laughs> seasons of Common Rider is about. Uh, a a professional gamer who decides to change careers and become a doctor, and then he uh, he but then video game viruses start infecting people, so he beats them with his gamer powers and then saves his patients with his doctor powers. Incredible. Yeah. Common <laughs> Rider is wild, and that is the level to which I can easily suspend my disbelief. So uh, so you know like a Western influenced game. That is Sergio Leone as hell, riding on horsebacks while casting spells from giant wind tigers and, you know, just trying to get enough money to upgrade your gun so it can hold five bullets instead of four and still have enough money for a train ticket to the next town. All of this I instantly accept. And the only things I don't accept are things like bad 2002 camera and having to mash square when you're looking for a new, uh, when you're looking for a new dungeon. Yeah. Um... But uh, you mentioned that uh, there was so, sort of some unusual staff taking uh, that took part in the Wild Arms Three development, including Square localization teams. Are there any sort of other unusual names that would make me raise one or both eyebrows? Uh, so these aren't terribly. I don't think these names are terribly um, 
illustrious or anything, but their credits are, are kind of weird. Like, uh, there's uh, Akira Sato, who executive produced this, who's also a supervisor on Shadow of the Colossus and uh, Ico, oh, which, which really? yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it, that's a f- kind of fascinating one. I mean, there are, you know, these two development teams kind of had a close relationship with Sony, so I could see that. One of them is the lead programmer, uh, Takao Suzuki. Um, so he was, he was a lead programmer for this, but he does a lot of the sound for a bunch of the Arc System games. Like, you know, your Guilty oh. Gears, your uh, Blaze Blues. Um, Those games have some pretty killer soundtracks and a lot of very, very meaty sound effects. Oh, yes. The, the best of butt rock. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. good. <laughs> no, man, if you want to talk about a fighting game where you have to suspend disbelief a little bit, oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Um, those character designs are a little extreme to put it, uh, you know, to understate it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. I'm, I'm a particular fan of Bedman from, uh, Guilty Gear Ex- Exerd Rev 2. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there is Yukihiko Ito, who is the art director on this and also Valkyria Chronicles 4, which mm. I think, I think makes quite a bit of sense. I see a few similarities in that. That's, that's an interesting through line. Cause I don't think media vision is around in the same form. It was when this game was made and, uh, and the, that a lot of Sony connections make sense. Cause I think all of the wild arms games were produced by Sony. Uh, th- and there's a handful of other Sony produced RPGs like uh, legend of, of dragoon was entirely in-house studio. Uh, uh, so in Sony Japan, but, yeah, that, that's interesting, especially since there's a connection between this and uh, Shadow of the Colossus, which is maybe my favorite PS2 game or on the very short list of favorites. But uh, yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, don't, I do not know what the Wild Arms team is up to because I, I don't have the deepest connection to the series and I haven't been following them around. Unlike, mm-hmm. you know, me trying to cross check the, the, uh, the staff credits for Skies of Arcadia with games made in the 2010s. Um, yeah, there is... There was one final one uh, oh. in terms of the credits that I found really interesting. Um, Kentaro Motomura, who is the producer on this, but he was also a producer on Dark Cloud, uh, Jean d'Arc, and most interesting, Bloodborne. Three other <laughs> Sony, Sony exclusives. So he, he must yeah. be a, a Sony Computer Entertainment Japan guy that's worked on a lot of projects. That's really interesting. Yeah. So it's just some really, just some really interesting people kind of... Uh, Names that aren't your kind of, they're not your, uh, you know, Fumito Ueda's or, or anything like that, but they're yeah, people wait, have when been you, around you said, When you said Sato's name, I'm like, wait a second, is he, he's not the creator, is he? But then I remember, no, 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 that, that's Fumito Ueda. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, some, some interesting through lines. Indeed. Well, uh... Speaking of interesting through lines, uh, we're going to be spending the second uh, the podcast next week with continuing with the story through line here. We barely got into chapter two, uh, talking about those the three robed figures and uh, and locating guardians in the first half of chapter two, where now that Virginia sort of has made her own personal commitment to what her uh, life as a drifter is going to be. But I am really looking forward to seeing how the story of Virginia Gallows, Jet, and Clive continues because again. Um, I've mentioned this in other podcasts. I think the most important part of an RPG is likable characters because you're going to be spending a lot of time with these characters. And if you don't want to be on this journey with them, then what is the point? 
But uh, I think Wild Arms 3 has a good main cast, and that is extremely important. So I'm, I'm definitely going to follow this one through to the end, uh, even if it means I have to play a couple hours a day for the next week and a half. <laughs> you got this. Yeah, I, we, I think I got this. Got this. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little behind you, but I think both of us are going to see credits roll uh, in, the next, uh, in the next 10 to 14 days, you know, because we're recording this a little bit early. Um, but listeners, uh, next week we're having more Wild Arms 3, in o- and in October there will be two episodes on Grandia, and at least one episode, well, no, uh, only one episode, on Link's Awakening, because uh, we had a Link's Awakening episode in April of last year, but uh, that was before the remake was even announced, So, and the remake comes out very, very soon at, at the time of recording or posting this podcast. So we're going to have a Link's Awakening revisited episode next month, uh, talking about the the original Link's Awakening and the remake. So please look forward to that. Uh, if you want to contact us directly, the best way to do so is to email retro at rpgfan.com. You can also visit rpgfan.com's message boards, Facebook page, Instagram page, Twitter account, Discord server, Twitch channel. There's something streaming on Twitch every day on the retro, uh, excuse me, on the RPG fan Twitch channel. Uh, so there's uh, something for everyone there. We also have two other podcasts, Random Encounter and Rhythm Encounter. Random Encounter just got back from a hiatus, and Rhythm Encounter is to be determined. But you can uh, review all three of those podcasts, Random, Rhythm, and Retro, on iTunes, Google Play, or however you are listening to us. We love feedback, and we will take all the constructive criticism we can stand. So, Joe, if listeners want to uh, reach out to you directly, what's the best way to do so? So, besides on RPG fans' uh, social medias, where you can find me with anything that's tagged with a dash J-O, you can find me on Twitter at Queers for Fears, and you can also find me on the Discord as such as well, uh, at Queers for Fears. Yeah, and uh, you alluded to it a little bit, but um, you do a lot of our Twitter and Facebook posting, so if if you're interacting with RPG Fan on Twitter or Facebook, it's probably, yeah, most of the time it's Steph, but it's also very often Lucy, Joe, or Nilsson, so, you, uh, mm-hmm. so that's probably the way people interact with you the most uh, in the RPG Fan Theater, at least. Absolutely, so please be kind to us. And you and and you all have so, <laughs> so far, <laughs> so we'll so see. far. But don't but don't come at me when I start talking more about Final Fantasy VIII. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, just sometimes the Discord gets weird. So uh, people have been nice to you so far. <laughs> yeah. And uh, listeners, if you want to reach me, the best way to do so is probably Twitter. I am at the Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times, <laughs> and uh, I am Monsoon Mike on Discord and Monsoon on the forum where I haven't posted in probably a year. So I I think we did it. We're uh, uh, Joe, you and I are not done with Wild Arms three yet, but uh, by the time we record the part two of this podcast, we shall. Absolutely, we'll see you all then. We will learn the ecstasy of gold <laughs> for a few dollars more. <laughs> Once upon a time in Philgaia. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you. Good night and good luck. <laughs>